0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled Suffering and Triumph. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: sudden surge forward of the Christian faith was a reminder that the early church, as we say it, had had a tiger by the tail. People were turning to the Lord in great numbers. At one time, Jerusalem was flooded with Christians, but then because of persecution, many were driven out. But that only created new opportunities. A vibrant church had begun in many cities in Judea. Other churches were being set up in the Diaspora, where you know Jews were settled in many of the other nations that surrounded Israel. The Samaritans now had a vibrant church, more so. There was a Gentile church in Caesarea, and the cream of the crop was a large, vibrant, and growing church in Antioch, northern Syria, made up of Jews and Gentiles. You know, that model, the one in Antioch, well, it might just serve as the most effective way forward for the church in the future. It testified that all the Jewish Christians in the diaspora could now reach out to Gentiles as well first eleven chapters of Acts really do spell out a story that would be difficult to believe if it were not true. A growing, flourishing church reaching out, and all the while, they were doing this while they had no levers of political power, nor did they have well-placed sympathizers in the corridors of power who might protect them and might provide them with some advantages. You know, all other major world religions have dramatic moments of unprecedented growth. Well, that's how they became world religions. But only Christianity grew when they had no political power at all—no armies, no well-placed advocates, no abilities to pass laws ensuring their success, either by force or by economic advantage bringing people in. I mean, that's what makes the Christian faith unique—has no equals. It attracted men and women through one means only—a declaration of the truth. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, offering reconciliation with God and the hope of eternal life. That's the triumph of the gospel. But when we tell the story that way, we've omitted something essential. The gains of the gospel came through suffering. You know, when we come to Acts chapter 12, we again see the church being hard pressed. So let's begin Acts 12:1 1-5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. understanding the historical background, I think we're going to miss the essential drama. Luke mentions Herod the king. You know, often Bible readers are confused with all those references to Herod. We remember the Herod who killed the boys in Bethlehem. Well, surely this can't be the same man. No, this is not the same man. This is the grandson of the Herod that many of us think about. That is Herod the Great. Herod had a great number of sons by different wives, and his favorite wife was a woman named Miriam. And she bore him a son named him Aristobulus. He gave birth to a son, the one we meet here, and he's called Herod Agrippa. When Herod Agrippa was only three years old, his grandfather, that is, Herod the Great, you know, because of his irrational suspicions in which he suspected everyone of trying to overthrow him, that is, when Herod Agrippa was three, his grandfather killed his father. And for all sorts of reasons, Herod Agrippa was raised in Rome and actually grew up with Claudius, who himself would become the emperor of Rome. And so Herod Agrippa, from childhood on, had very powerful connections. And it was later that the emperor Caligula actually bestowed the title king to Herod Agrippa, and he is the Herod that we read about in Acts 12. He's well connected to the Roman power structures, and on that basis has a great deal of power to do as he wills. Rome is backing him. Later, when Claudius became emperor, Herod's power only increased. But there's something else that we must not miss about this man. The Pharisees loved him. Herod Agrippa spent most of his time in Jerusalem, and he carefully observed the laws of Moses. It was said he never allowed a single day to pass without observing its appointed sacrifice. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish authorities allowed him to be the one who was given the honor of reading the law of God publicly for all Jerusalem to hear. Even though he had both Jewish and Gentile blood, his commitment to the law made him very popular in very powerful circles. So from the Roman perspective, he had all the power he wanted. And from the religious leader's perspective, he's very popular. So our text begins with the words, about that time. So which time? I think it must have been about the time when there was a famine and about the time when Paul and Barnabas had showed up in Jerusalem, giving financial aid to the hard pressed Christians there, aid that was given from the church in Antioch. Somewhere around the time of those events, for a reason that Luke doesn't explain, suddenly King Herod laid violent hands on the church. We've already seen that there have been earlier persecutions that broke out you know, after Stephen was stoned, and then we've observed, That then, according to Acts 9.31, for a season, the church had peace. Persecution has subsided. But now suddenly it flares up, and we're left to wonder what gave rise to it a second time. You know, some have suggested that the offering from Antioch and the growing awareness that the church was flourishing in faraway cities, and that it now contained a great many Gentiles, that all of that was deeply upsetting to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And Herod, always willing to ingratiate himself with the religious leadership, swung into action. Luke says he laid violent hands on some in the church, and I have to assume these brothers and sisters were not just arrested, they were roughed up quite a bit. It was the kind of an arrest that was intended to intimidate everyone else. And then with only one line, Luke tells of the first martyr among the apostolic band. One of the twelve is now martyred. And for all of you who know your church history, this is but the beginning of the martyrdom of all the apostles, with the exception of John. So this is James, and it's not James who's the brother of Jesus. Rather, this is James, the brother of the apostle John. You might remember Matthew 4, 21 to 22. And speaking of Jesus, Matthew says, and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So that's how James' adventure with Jesus began. And according to Acts 12, verse 2, this is now how his adventure with Jesus ended. You might also remember that it was James and John who at one time came to Jesus and asked him at the instigation of their mother in the world to come. You know, They wanted to sit one on the right hand and the other on the left hand of Jesus. Those were the positions of honor. And you might also remember that Jesus asked them if they knew what they were asking. Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup I drink? Yeah, they say, we are able to do that. And now here's James called upon to suffer at the hands of evil men, even as his Savior did. He did drink the cup. James will find his place among the white-robed martyrs who loved Christ even unto death. His life and his death still testify to us today that to know Christ and to hold fast to him is better than life itself. Should following Christ cost me all that I have, says James, I've lost nothing. For to have Christ is to have found a treasure of infinite value, as in the parable of the treasure that was found in the field in which a man or a woman will sell all that he or she has and buys that field. Luke says James was killed with the sword, and so according to historical tradition, Herod just gave the order to his soldiers And they beheaded James. You know, to no surprise, Herod sees that this action pleases the Jews. And here again, when Luke says the Jews, he means the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're delighted to see Herod going after the senior leadership in the church. Kill them, and then you destroy the entire movement. Cut off the head, and the rest of the body will die as well. At least, that would have been their thinking. And with that, Herod goes into high gear. He goes after senior leadership. Peter is arrested. Luke simply adds, this happened during the season of unleavened bread. Now, you might remember that Jesus died during Passover. And if you know the First Testament well, the Feast of Unleavened Bread occurred right after Passover. It went on for seven days. Jerusalem would still be crowded with pilgrims, just like it had been when Jesus was put to death. So Luke then tells us that because of the crowds— Herod put a high level of security around Peter. Most likely this guard was not the temple guard, rather this guard were the very well-trained, well-equipped Roman soldiers who knew how to handle any potential riot. There were too many people in Jerusalem, extra care simply had to be taken. And Luke mentions four squads of soldiers, and. That was a common Roman procedure in which each squad of soldiers would take their turn, guarding a highly sensitive prisoner throughout the night. Each guard would have lasted three hours in length.
0: We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to all Canadians is important to you. It is with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship, a monthly giving program. This fellowship program ensures that the true wisdom found in the Bible will continue to be shared and made available for generations to come. One of our 1119 members wrote to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Neufeld. This is why we're monthly supporters of this ministry. I've been so encouraged by the teaching of the Bible. The research that has been done by Dr. John has opened my eyes to the truths of the Bible. Thank you. God bless you. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425. In
1: response to the death of James and now the arrest of Peter, which you know would have also ended in his death, The church resorts to the only response they actually had. There were no high-ranking politicians that they could have lobbied, no Supreme Court where they might have made their case. As I stated at the beginning, the church had no armies. They had no one of high standing before whom they could have hoped for justice. And So the seemingly powerless church does the only thing they can do. They appeal to God. Luke says, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And the word earnest can also be translated as fervent. They prayed with all their hearts and souls. They appealed to God. And Luke says this kind of a a prayer was being made by the whole church. God's people were coming together and made an appeal. Luke doesn't tell us everything that was prayed, and one has to wonder whether the death of James happened so quickly that the same kinds of prayers were not able to be made then. But given the execution of James and now the arrest of Peter, the whole church is doing business with God. Again, we don't know what they prayed, but one wonders if they remembered some of the great deeds of the Lord from the First Testament. Perhaps they remembered second Kings chapter six, when the king of Syria surrounded the city where the prophet Elisha was staying, and we had come to seize the prophet. And then the Lord revealed the horses and chariots of the great angelic host and how the Lord struck the Syrian army with blindness. You know, perhaps they remembered Daniel in the lion's den. Perhaps they remembered the words of Jonathan, David's friend, when he said, the Lord is able to deliver, either by many men or by few. You know, On that occasion, Jonathan had remarked that the battle was the Lord's. You know, perhaps they remembered how God delivered King Jehoshaphat on the day of the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem. Or maybe they simply quoted from Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Perhaps they say, Lord, if you're pleased now, nothing can stop you from acting. At any rate, the church prayed fervently. So let's keep reading our text, Acts 12, 6 to 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. But in Peter's case, he is bound with chains, and he's placed securely between two guards. He's bound to them. And so we have to picture that no one was taking any chances. Having the leader of the Christians in prison, readying him for what would surely be his execution, utmost security was required. There was a double chain, one chain to each soldier, and the other two keeping watch of the door. This would have been traded off every three hours. No one was taking their eyes off of him. And Peter is fast asleep. It's not the picture of a terrified man. He he rests in his God. And then in a deep sleep, the angel of the Lord enters, one of God's fighting men, a soldier in God's army. Light shines in the cell, but Peter is so deeply asleep, he doesn't notice. And the angel moves over and doesn't nudge him. You know, our passage says he struck him on the side. Good, sharp blow. Wake up. And even after that blow, Peter's not sure if he's simply seeing a vision. There are a number of reasons for that. Clearly, the guards are now asleep, something that would not have been expected. But with the chains having fallen off, Peter is told to dress himself, and clearly he doesn't have to do that in the dark. The prison cell is filled with light. It is most likely that Peter was held in the Antonia Fortress. One exit led to the temple and the other into the city, and so the gate to the city simply opens on its own. Peter is taken out into the streets of Jerusalem. The minute he's on the street, the angel left him. I mean, did he disappear or simply make a hasty exit? Well, Luke doesn't say, but Peter's left standing by himself in the street of Jerusalem in the middle of the night. It's only at this moment that he realizes, look, this is no vision. I'm actually standing in the middle of the street. I've been rescued from Herod and the other conspirators. God sent his angel to deliver me from death. You know, Peter's words are telling here. He says, I have been rescued from all the Jewish people were expecting. See, he knows the religious leadership wanted him dead. You know, I wonder as he stood in the street by himself, whether thoughts were swirling through his head, how things had changed. When the church first began on those very streets in Jerusalem, Luke reported back in chapter 2, verse 47, that at that time, the church enjoyed the favor of all the people. So much had changed since then. Stephen had died on those streets, and so many of the believers had fled the city. James had just died there, yeah. The church of Jesus had expanded, perhaps at this time a decade has passed. So many people were finding forgiveness in Christ, and there were far greater successes than they could have imagined, but the cost had been real. Jesus had said that he was bringing a sword, that people would be divided over him. So what does Peter do at that moment? So look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. A certain woman named Mary had a great many of people over at her house to pray for Peter. We don't know anything about Mary. I mean, is she a widow? I mean, after all, her husband isn't mentioned. We do get a sense that she must have had a sizable home. She's a hostess for a great many believers. No doubt for this crisis, she opened up her home to the largest company possible. They've come to pray. Luke says she has a son whose name is John, and his other name is Mark. We take that to mean his Jewish name is John. The Greek name is Mark. The young man will have a significant role to play in the early church. I have no doubt that he was the young man who had followed and watched Jesus when he was arrested. And when one of the soldiers arresting Jesus saw him and wanted to seize him, they grabbed his garment. John Mark got away, leaving the garment in the soldier's hand. He ran away naked. In Colossians 4, verse 10, Paul identified him as the cousin of Barnabas. We also know that later on, when Paul and Barnabas would begin their first missionary journey, when things got really tough, John Mark would desert the missionary team. Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance. Paul was dead set against it. An argument over John Mark ensued, and he'd become the reason that the great friendship between Barnabas and Paul would fall apart. But of course, in time, John Mark would redeem himself. In time, with Peter's overseeing, he would write the Gospel of Mark. You know, there's quite a story that developed over this house. But when Peter escaped prison, he could think of no better house to go to than this very house. So let's keep reading Acts 12, 13 to 17. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept on insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. It's a humorous part of the story. God was answering their prayers and no one believed it. You know, we shouldn't be too hard on these believers. I think all of us had moments when God has answered our prayers and we were actually surprised. Clearly, Rhoda, the servant girl who answered, thought that she had seen an angel who looked like Peter. When Peter called to her, she leaves him at the gate to tell everyone inside, and they're all disbelieving as she is. I mean, eventually, the matter does get settled. But we can also see that from that moment, Peter goes on the run. He can no longer stay in Jerusalem. When he and John had been arrested for the first time, and when the Lord released them from the prison, they just went back to preaching in the streets of Jerusalem. But not now. Now things had changed. This now had become a very deadly game. You know, the rest of the book of Acts will continue to tell the amazing story of the unstoppable nature of the growth of the church and of the glad proclamation of the gospel. But it also tells the story that the cost of declaring Jesus came with sacrifice, with blood, with martyrs, with courage, and with great effort. But that's not why the message of Jesus was succeeding in reaching the world. It was succeeding because of what paul would say later in romans chapter 8 if god is for us who can be against us see the book of acts and the story of the growth of the church is a sure reminder that god is for the church of jesus christ and that's a wonderful thing to remember the gospel will not be stopped god is for his
0: people this is the god who is for the gospel John, thanks so much for your message. A quick question, maybe not a simple one, but how would you describe or characterize the growth of the church?
1: I'd say it would be a pulsating model. It's not a graph that goes straight up and just keeps on going. There are times, especially in the history of the church, where the the church has contracted considerably. Uh, You know, there are times in the Middle Ages, if you hadn't known better, you'd have thought, uh, this is the end of Christianity. But of course, We know that the promises of God are are true. And then there are other times when there seems to be such rapid growth. Uh, In any case, wherever we find ourselves, we are called upon to remain faithful. At times, faithfulness will be a part of a great harvest. And other times, faithfulness will mean that we're simply holding on. But in either case, uh, we do so knowing that God is in control. So, you know, I, I would say that's my understanding of the growth of the church.
0: Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem, right here on Back to the Bible Canada Bible Teaching You Can Trust. Do you want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.